0: I don't know how plugged in you are to Boston or National Sports Talk Radio, Uh, but if you aren't, I'll catch you up to speed real quick. There is lots of talk these days about who is the GOAT, who is the greatest of all time. Of course, radio analysts and pundits are not talking about this in relation to the National Football League. We all know who the GOAT is there. Uh, No, they're talking about in basketball, in the NBA. Recently, LeBron James became the NBA's all-time leading scorer with 38,450 points. And so this debate, which kind of rages on again, off again, whenever LeBron breaks a new record, is who is greater, LeBron or Michael Jordan? LeBron's got four trophies, but MJ had six. Uh, Jordan never lost in the championship finals round. And all six times that he was in the finals, he was named MVP. And so radio hosts and guests alike will debate Jordan's 14 All-Star Game appearances to LeBron's 19 selections. They'll compare defensive ratings, assists, teammates, coaches. It's good for ratings. And the debate seems endless. Who? is the greatest This morning we come to Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20, as the Apostle Paul aims to clear the air, as it were, and declare who is the unequivocal greatest in all of creation. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. Uh, we have Bibles over there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, we, we do have Bibles over there. Let me encourage you to grab one, take it home with you as our gift to you. Uh, there's nothing more important than we could give you than God's word. So if you'll read it, uh, please just feel free to take that home. You'll recall that the Apostle Paul was writing this letter around 60 AD from a Roman prison. Uh, he was writing in response to the visit from Epaphras, who brought good news of good fruit in the congregation, uh, but also of some troubling teaching, which had begun to infect and infiltrate the church. Paul wrote to combat a false ideology, which accepted Christ, but also, insisted that, that real and genuine and important spiritual insight and knowledge was found outside of him. Uh, that there were certain spiritualities that you, Christian, had to pay attention to. And if you didn't, you would be deficient because Christ was not sufficient. And so it's to combat this very view that we come to probably, or maybe not I even mean probably, yeah, the most important verses in the book of Colossians. You can say the first 14 verses are a real quick ramp up to this passage this morning, and then the rest of the book will just basically flow out of these verses. It will be in response to what we read today. This morning's passage is the theological high watermark from which all other theology and practice in Colossians will flow. We'll have two sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Christ deserves our devotion because he is supreme in both creation and new creation. Christ deserves our devotion because he is supreme in both creation and new creation. So with that in mind, look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 15 to 17, entitled Supreme in Creation. And what we're going to find is that our entire passage, which some scholars think was an early hymn to Christ, is really a doxological reflection on who Jesus is. Uh, So you'll notice that there's not a single imperative or command in our passage. The emphasis isn't, do this, Christian, but behold your God, Christian. It's heavy on theology, and theology is always meant to lead to doxology, to praise. So notice how verse 15 begins. We read, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Each one of these phrases is pregnant with meaning. Uh, The first one might sound familiar to you, Because Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27 state, uh, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, This means in Genesis 1 that Adam and Eve were created to reflect, uh, to display, to mirror God's character and his nature, his attributes and his actions, they were to be a mirror so that if you asked, what's God like? You could point to Adam and Eve and say, like that. Not, not physically, but in their character and their conduct. Okay, but here's where Colossians 1 pushes the envelope. In Genesis 1, we learn that humanity is created in God's image. But do you notice what Colossians 1.15 states? That the Lord Jesus Christ is The image of God. He is the image of God. The point is that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is the perfect reflection and imprint of God. From eternity past, God the Son has always and ever been perfectly reflecting, displaying, being, and mirroring God's character and attributes even before there was a watching world. And thus, Adam was not the first image of God. Jesus is, as one commentator states, the first Adam was a creaturely replica of the eternal Son of God. He was an earthly sketch of the eternal preexistent Son of God. And it's precisely because Jesus is the divine image that Jesus can then become a human image-bearer, what we read about with the Ligonier Statement on Christology, uh, what Christians refer to as the incarnation. Uh, So why could the second person of the Trinity put on humanity? I know it sounds crazy, but why couldn't he have become a dog or a dolphin? Well, it's because humanity is in the image of the image. Uh, Jesus is God's image, and humanity was created in that image, to image Christ. Uh, so when the Lord Jesus assumed our humanity, he didn't assume a nature, a nature contrary to his divine nature, though of course deity is infinitely greater than humanity. But in becoming man, the Son came to fulfill that human imaging which Adam had been created for. And so friends, what this means is that the Lord Jesus Christ now, in his glorified and exalted state uh, in 2023, Right now, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, doubly imaging God. He is the eternal image of God according to his divine nature. And now, as the last Adam and as true humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ also images God according to his human nature. Right, Adam and Eve, they were supposed to to image God to the world, to display God. But, of course, they, they failed. Adam fell to sin's, sin's temptations, and thus he gave an inaccurate picture of what God is like. And it was to fix that problem that Jesus became incarnate. He took on our human nature. The reason that Christ can take up the image of God in humanity is because he is the image of God in his divinity. So that now, if you want to know what God is like, don't look at Adam, look at Jesus. Jesus. That's why Jesus replies to Philip, you remember in John 10, he says, uh, show us the Father. And then Jesus says, Philip, if if you've been with me, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. According to both his deity and his humanity, Jesus is the eternal God, the image, uh, sorry, according to his deity and humanity, Jesus is the image of God, truly God and truly man. What should we take of that second phrase in verse 15? Uh, the ESV has a, has a great literal rendering. He is the firstborn of all creation. If you have an NIV or a CSB or, or lots of other good translations, we'll render it. He is the firstborn over all creation. I, th- I think we need to make two basic observations of this verse to, to understand what Paul is getting at. The first is that we, un- we need to understand how Greek works. Okay, so the ESV translates it literally when it uses that word of. That's what the the Greek states. Uh, But the word of can be very vague. I can say like this is the car of Ian. And that's referring to possession. I can say one of the boats. That's one boat among many. Uh, I can refer to the love of God, referring to the love that we have for God. Or I can refer to the love of God, God's love for us. That word of does a lot in the English language. And so it is in Greek. What does Paul mean when he says of? Some, like Jehovah's Witnesses, would state that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, from among creation. Like I would say, Henry is one of my children. Meaning he belongs to that set of beings that is my children. Is that what Paul is saying about Jesus? I appreciate that people are shaking their heads no. <laughs> I don't think that's what Paul means. In fact, I think it's the opposite of what he means for a number of reasons. Because first, again, Jesus has just, Paul has just asserted Jesus' deity as the image of God. And then second, look at verse 18. We get a really similar but slightly different construction where we get that word firstborn again. The ESV translates it just as literally as it did previously in verse Verse 18 says, he is the firstborn from the dead. That's an excellent translation uh, because Paul uses the word from to denote that Jesus did belong to the set of beings that were dead people. He used to belong to that class of beings. He is one of the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. The dead. He doesn't just say firstborn of the dead uh, to let you know that Jesus was part of the dead ones. He uses that word from. Okay, so all that to say when we get back to verse 15, we see that Paul specifically did not use the word from. That is that Paul was not trying to communicate that Jesus was, let's say, the first being from among the set of beings that is creation. That is not what Paul is saying. That's why I think the NIV and CSB translations are probably the most helpful. Uh, When Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, he means something similar to when we say, she's the coach of the team. So she's not a member of the team, she's not a player, she's the coach over the team. That's what Paul is getting at when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He isn't part of creation, but he's over creation as it's firstborn. That's the second thing that we need to state. What what is a firstborn? Well, of course, literally, it could refer to the the first uh, from the womb. But it came on to take this metaphorical meaning and significance in the Old Testament of preeminence. So the Lord refers to Israel in Exodus 4 as my firstborn son. Well, that's strange, God. Like, do you have other sons? Well, no, that's not what what God is trying to say. The point is that as a firstborn son receives an inheritance, so Israel is going to receive an inheritance, namely the land of Canaan. And then in a really important psalm, Psalm 89, we learn that the Messiah and King of Israel will also assume this firstborn status. So Psalm 89, verse 17 reads, the Lord says, And I will make David the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. Now pause. If you, you know, if you know your first Samuel, Jesus or David had lots of brothers. Was he the oldest? No, he was the runt of the litter. He's the youngest. And yet God can call him the firstborn. Why? Because he's getting an inheritance as if he was the firstborn. What is the inheritance? He will be the highest of the kings of the earth. The point is that the Davidic king, the future Messiah of Israel, would inherit the nations. And it's this messianic and expectation and prophecy from Psalm 89 that Paul is especially picking up on here in Colossians 1. The Davidic king was supposed to be higher than every other king on earth. And in Colossians 1, we read and learn that that king is none other than the king Jesus And he does indeed receive as firstborn the inheritance, not just of all the nations, but of all creation. He doesn't just rule over the kings of the earth, but he rules over the whole cosmos. Uh, The reason why Jesus has the exalted status of firstborn over, inheritor, and ruler as king over all the nations is what we find in verse 16. Look there, you notice that first word, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. You see, Jesus is the king and inheritor of creation because he is creation's creator. Uh, Genesis 1 in the Old Testament is very clear, there's only one creator and that's God. God does not give that duty and job to angels or other deities or anything else. God is the creator. And so again, when we see that Jesus is the agent of creation, uh, we see that Jesus is worthy of our worship and fealty precisely because he made us. Uh, God the Father created the universe by means of his eternal son when he spoke the world into being. This, is, this theme is repeated numerous times in the New Testament. I wonder if you picked up on it in John 1, uh, where all things were created and came into existence by the Son. Hebrews 1 says something similar. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, notice that language of heir, through whom he also created the world. It's because Jesus was the one through whom the world was created that he's the heir, the firstborn, the one who receives all the rights to our worship and our devotion and our lives. He created and owns the world. When Paul refers to heaven and earth, he's being comprehensive, right? It's that same wording from Genesis 1 to refer to the whole universe. And then Paul zooms in a little bit. Do you notice? He says, heaven and earth, visible, invisible, invisible. And then he he doesn't go on to highlight Jesus' role in creating humanity or the Berkshire Mountains or Bedford Farms ice cream. All wonderful things. But he refers to thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Uh, These refer to the spiritual powers in the universe. Whenever this language is used in the Old Testament and New, it's referring to spiritual beings in the heavenlies. And specifically... What makes this really interesting is that Paul is mainly referring to the evil angelic beings of the heavenly realms. That's what we see, again, throughout the Old and New Testament. These words denote the spiritual forces even of darkness. This theme is going to come up a number of times over the next, Lord willing, 12 weeks or so. Um, And here are some of Paul's initial blows against the false teaching that was infecting the Colossian church. Apparently, they were being taught that there were these spiritual forces, these spiritual beings that you had to pay attention to, Christian. Yeah, Jesus is great. We're not saying don't do Jesus, but just know you really need to be paying attention to these other spiritual powers and realities that rule and have dominion in the world. Jesus kind of has his kingdom, his rule and reign, but don't forget about these other people, these other beings. you got to pay attention to them. That's what being was promoted in Colossae, and it's precisely because of that that Paul says, nah, Jesus isn't just one spiritual authority next to these other spiritual authorities. He owns it all. He rules it all. He created it all. The point is that he is in charge, not them, right? So the clay doesn't say to the potter, I will rebel against you and defeat you. A Lego set doesn't say to the child, I'm in charge now. No, the creator rules. And so it is that Jesus is in charge. Now, you don't have to worry about these other spiritual powers. I know as verse 16 ends, all things were created through him and for him. Because Christ is the agent of creation, he is also the aim of creation. Because Christ is the agent of creation. He is also the aim of creation. Meaning that that even these dark spiritual powers who have rebelled against God's rule and reign, you know, you shouldn't get the idea that Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness have just kind of like ruined God's plan. Right? Like, oh no, what's God going to do? He's got this really big enemy. And now there are these two rival kingdoms, these two rival spiritual powers. I wonder who's going to win. No, friends, it's not like that. Uh, These spiritual dark powers have rebelled against God's rule, and yet they can't ultimately oppose or thwart the rule and reign of Christ in the cosmos because he is their creator owner, and they continue to exist for him, for his purposes, for his glory. Uh, Friends, it is good news that Christ created all things, both visible and invisible, and that he rules over the spiritual realm. If you are in Christ, you don't need to worry about the spiritual forces at work in the world. You don't need to worry that your captain and savior is going to be outranked by another. You don't need to worry that your king will have to bow the knee to another. No, the Lord Jesus Christ created all things. He rules all things as firstborn king. Uh, the spiritual forces even of darkness answer to him and him alone, for they were created through him and for him. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I, I wonder how this sounds to you. All this talk of spiritual forces, invisible Realities. I wonder if it sounds primitive, foolish. Well, it could be, but I also wonder why is it that every indigenous tribe and, and people around the globe for all of human history have detected that there are these deities or spirits or forces at work in the world. There are no atheistic tribes. You know, what is it about the world that people across time and place and ethnicity and economics have all concluded that there are really spiritual forces and powers at work. Or you say that might just confirm your belief that religion is for primitive people and primitive ways of thinking. Yet isn't it the child who says, if I can't see it, it can't be real? As Christians, we know that there are forces at work in the world. The world, the cosmos, is bigger and vaster than we sometimes think. Christians, it's the reality of spiritual beings that causes God to prohibit the use of mediums and necromancers and sorcerers. So in a day and age like today, when paganism and occult spiritualities are on the rise... Uh, It's important that you know that God doesn't prohibit sorcery because there's nothing there, but because there is something there, and it's dark. God would not have you trifle with spiritual powers of darkness. We don't need to be afraid of these powers if you are in Christ, uh, but neither should we invite them into our lives. As Christians, we rejoice that it is our good God and King who is the king of light, who created all things and rules over all things, even over demonic forces. And so our first point concludes in verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That first statement, he is before all things, isn't mainly talking about Jesus' chronological superiority and priority. You know, that Jesus existed in eternity past, and then all things were created. So in that sense, he was chronologically before i don't think that's actually the main point because the progression of verse 16 right was from creation at the beginning of the verse to the aim of creation its end point at the end of the verse paul has gone from the beginning of history to its end and thus here in verse 17 the point is as jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power he is before all things now he is before all things, not just he was before all things. Jesus is before all things in the sense that he is a higher rank than all things. He is before all things in the sense that he is preeminent. All of creation exists for him to serve his ultimate ends. He doesn't serve their ends, but all things serve him. For as Hebrews 1 puts it, he upholds the universe by his powerful world. In him all things hold together. You see, Christ didn't just create and let the universe go, but he continues to be actively ruling and reigning in your life and mine and throughout the world and all of history. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian this morning, uh, you can rejoice that it is your King who is ruler over the cosmos, who is the firstborn over all. Again, in any movie or book, or play, or sporting event, the drama comes in, who's going to win? You, you size up the, the armies of Mordor, or Voldemort's villains, or the massive dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, and you think, oh no, what's going to happen? Well, I'm sorry to take the drama out of it for you, but the end is not in doubt. In the Christian life, for history, for the universe, Jesus is reigning, And Jesus will reign until the end comes. Satan has indeed spoiled this old creation. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air at the present time. But make no mistake, God's got him on a leash. He only moves when Christ lets him. All things exist through Christ and for Christ. Let's turn to our second section now, found in verses 18 to 20, entitled Supreme in New Creation. What we're going to find is that these verses are are meant as a parallel to Christ's work in creation, what we've just considered. Uh, To refer to new creation is to refer to God's work of undoing the curse of sin, condemning sin to hell, bringing about true and eternal shalom and peace. It's about restoring what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Uh, so, summarizing the following verses, one commentator states just as the pre incarnate Christ was the divine sovereign over the temporary first creation, so he will be the divine human sovereign over the new everlasting creation. So, verse 18 begins He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Just as Christ was the head and ruler of creation, so too, he's the head and ruler over the new creation. The new creation, uh, the tip of the sphere of the new creation, where we see the the future breaking into the present. Well, where do we see that? We see it in the church, right here at Trinity Church of Bedford, at Grace Presbyterian Church, at Carlisle Congregational, You see, this is applied not merely individually, but to the church is new creation language. Uh, To state that Christ is the head of the body, the church, is to communicate that he is our authority and ruler, that he's in charge, not us. But more than that, it's also meant to communicate source and life and this level of intimacy that Christ has with his people. You know, we are his very body. We're not just citizens of his kingdom. We are members of his very person with Christ as our head. You notice in the New Testament, these word pictures that describe the relationship of Christ and the church, of husband and wife, uh, vine and branches, head and body. There is this intimacy, this care, uh, Christ's provision for us. And so notice when referring to, to Christians and those who have been redeemed, There are no lone ranger Christians in the New Testament. If you've got the Lord Jesus as your head, it's because you are part of the body. That's just the way it works. Stated negatively, if you're not connected to the body, then Christ isn't your head. Of course, Paul is referring to the universal church here, but it applies derivatively to the local church. As Christians, we gather in local bodies because that's where the universal is made manifest. As Christ, one commenter states, is the source of the new creation, the church is the visible locus of the renewal of creation. Uh, the, the reconciliation and peace in our relationships. The reconciliation and peace that we enjoy with God. Our life corporately is so significant Because it's God's spirit being poured out and changing us wicked sinners into saints so that we love one another and glorify God. That's what's happening in the church. The future is coming back into the present. That's what we continue to see in verse 18 when it says that Christ is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We find the phrase firstborn from the dead repeated in Revelation 1 And the phrase, the beginning, in Revelation 3. And again, the the parallel in our passage is meant for verse 15, right? With Christ's role as firstborn over the old creation. The point is that at Jesus' resurrection, he kicks off the new creation. Okay, so so this language of new creation, uh, it's from Isaiah 55 and, and following. And it's used to describe the promises of God of a renewed cosmos or universe. It refers to harmony and peace and shalom. It refers to the removal of sin and guilt and wrath. Of prosperity and the knowledge of God. That there's material and interpersonal and creational reconciliation. That's what new creation language is meant to to signify. These are the, the glorious promises of God that, you know, if you read your Old Testament, you get to Isaiah 55 and other passages, and you're like, this sounds amazing. The lion's laying down with the lamb. I mean, you know, there's just a million amazing things about it. And so if you read Isaiah 55 without Colossians 1, you might think, well, that's a long ways away. I've watched National Geographic Channel. The lion is, only lays down with the lamb in one condition, and that's dinner. So, Scott, this is, you know, that's great that the new creation's coming, but Paul's point here in Colossians 1 is that it has already begun. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new creation work. The future glory and end times realities have invaded our present condition. Because if you think about it, what is the main thing that dominates this? age this day which God said he'd get rid of in heaven like what's the one thing well it's sin and what's like the worst consequence of sin I heard you David I was, yeah I got you but what what is the the one result the main result of sin it's death well guess what Jesus's resurrection undoes death he overthrows the grave until Christ's resurrection If you're born, you're a sinner, so you die. It's like a one-to-one-to-one correlation. And then Jesus breaks it. He's born, but he ain't a sinner. He dies, but then he gets back up. Because God's promised day, the promised new creation, the reversing of sin and death began to come true in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thus the end times glory and peace began to invade the present some 2,000 years ago. And it's been happening ever since. It's been happening ever since as people are united by faith to this Christ. I wonder if this has happened in your life. Jesus says that the one who believes in him has already passed from death to life. The point is that if you trust in Christ... His resurrection becomes the guarantee of your resurrection. That's why 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that we read earlier, that Holly read for us, refers to Christ as the first fruits. The word is almost identical to that word beginning in our passage today. Christ is the first fruits from the dead in the sense that his resurrection was the first of many to come. And that new life is available to you if you will be united to Christ, if you will trust in him. So 2 Corinthians 4 states, uh, not just that you know, new creation is out there happening in the world through Jesus' resurrection, but if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's right you can get in on the end times realities of forgiveness of sins and eternal life and resurrection right now by repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ. Friends, if you've not done so, today's a great day to do it. Every Lord's Day, that's why Christians gather on Sunday because it's the Lord's Day, the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. We celebrate what he's done for us and we look forward to when he will return. The result of Christ's work in new creation, well, you see, it makes, it makes sense that verse 18 ends the way it does. He did all this so that in everything he might be preeminent. It would make no sense for Christ to be preeminent in creation, for creation to be then spoiled by sin and Satan, and then for the Lord Jesus to entrust salvation and rulership of this new creation to anyone else. To some angel or some other being. No, to be supreme ruler of the old and new creation, he did the work. And friends, if the whole universe and all of salvation history, from the old creation to the new creation, literally eternity past to eternity future, uh, if all of it is Christ-centered and Christ-exalting, shouldn't we be? If the whole cosmos is oriented, sorry, I keep saying, that's the Greek way to pronounce the word, the whole cosmos or something. If the whole cosmos is oriented around Christ and his creating and saving work, well, shouldn't that be the center of our lives too? The most significant thing about us, what is most preeminent in your life is not the degree you have or the job you have or the income or the family or the friends or the children or whatever. The most preeminent fact about you if you're in Christ is that Jesus is Lord. No matter what trials or temptations you might be going through this morning or what blessings or gifts you're enjoying, you can be sure of this, that God works all things together for the preeminence of his son. He gives you delicious clam chowder so that you would praise God in creation. He saves you from your sins and gives you the hope of eternal life so that you would praise him for his grace and for his mercy. God has set everything up for the glory and supremacy and preeminence of Christ. And the reason he does that is what our passage concludes with in verses 19 and 20. God orchestrated creation, salvation, history to bring glory to Jesus Christ for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two concluding reasons why Jesus deserves our devotion, to be preeminent in our lives. Number one, in verse 19, because, Christ, because in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, this is likely an allusion to Psalm 67, verse 17 in the Septuagint. Which states that God was well pleased to dwell in the temple at Zion. So in the Old Testament, the word please, uh, well pleased and to dwell occur together only one time, and that's right there, Psalm 67, referring to God's good pleasure in dwelling in the temple. The point, as one author puts it, is that God's presence on earth is no longer in the earthly temple. The Holy of Holies, but is now in Christ, who fulfills all that the temple represented. So, again, friends, do you want to know where God is? Don't look for a building. Don't look on a high mountain. Don't try to read the stars or the palm of your hand. Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ is the full expression of deity. Jesus is not partly God, he's not mostly divine. He is truly and fully God. That's what we read about earlier in our Ligonier Statement of Faith, a statement on Christology. We saw this a bunch in Mark as well. The New Testament is replete with assertions of the deity of Christ. So just don't believe the magazines and tabloids and scholars who say that Christianity foisted divinity onto Jesus in the fourth century. Next time you read that, you can just show them Colossians one. 15 through 20, and say, I don't think so. Here we are 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection in 60 AD. Paul is either writing or quoting a hymn, which clearly states that all that God is, is found in Jesus Christ. And then number two, the second reason that God intends Jesus to be preeminent in the universe and in your life is that through him, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. Here we see Paul circle back, as it were. Just as Christ was the agent through whom he, God created all things, so here Christ is the agent through whom God reconciles all things. You notice that these all things, whether on earth or in heaven, these are the ones that have been mentioned in verse 16. It includes the thrones and dominions and rulers, even the evil ones who have rebelled against his rule. Does this imply that God somehow saves and redeems fallen angels and even Satan himself? Is this stating that God makes peace with the devil? Well, no. Uh, We know that's not the case because there are so many passages that talk about the judgment and destruction that await Satan and his followers. To use just one example, 1 Corinthians 15, what we read earlier, right? Paul says, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, using the exact same terms in our Colossians passage. The point is, far from making a a treaty or a truce with his enemies, Jesus destroys them. And it's in that sense that peace is achieved. It's not that God makes a deal with the devil, but rather Christ brings peace by defeating all his foes, All his opponents, there are no more rebels left. And strangely, he does this by the blood of his cross. Paul elaborates on this in Colossians 2 14 and 15 when he says, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. You know how ironic that God would effect peace by blood and that he would win victory through a cross. Yet, brothers and sisters, we rejoice because at the cross, at the resurrection, Jesus has achieved our reconciliation, peace, and victory. Those end times realities we enjoy now in an already not yet sense. Uh, Already we are beginning to enjoy the spirit and reconciliation, and peace, and forgiveness of sins, and eternal life, but not yet in its fullest form. And so it is that we await the return of Christ. Make no mistake, the devil may be the god of this age, as Second Corinthians 4, 4 states, but this age is coming to an end. The eternal age has already broken in. Satan was like a mischievous hijacker who took creation over over for a season, but God promised, I'll be back. God wasn't going to abandon his creation. No, the Lord Jesus entered into the world that he made to redeem it, to reconcile it, to rescue it, to bring about peace. To those who submit freely, we enjoy that peace and reconciliation now. To those who refuse to trust in his blood, they will submit forcibly on the last day. Brothers and sisters, in summary, the Lord Jesus deserves to be preeminent in your life and in mine, in this church and in this town, in greater Boston, to the ends of the earth and in the whole universe, because he has done it all. He created it all and he rules it all. He died to save it all. He rose to reclaim it all. Let's respond by giving our all to him in devotion and praise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you as our King and our Savior. We praise you as the one who has saved us, who has brought peace and is bringing still more peace. We praise you that you will defeat the powers of evil on the last day. We praise you that you've already defeated them through your cross and resurrection. Lord, we pray that we would live in total devotion to you, seeing your supremacy and sufficiency. We pray that you'd help us to trust in your blood and in your work, in you being our all. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, friends, we'll conclude our time this morning by singing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery on page 15. Uh, This song is basically a narrative walking through the gospel from eternity past. When the Lord Jesus, the theme of heaven's praises, he took on and became robed in frail humanity. So let's stand together and sing on page 15 Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery.